So just before we dismiss uh, Bridge Kids, I want to encourage our kids with just how important and how valuable their moms are. In an article in Forbes magazine, uh, they did a a calculation and estimation on uh, what moms are worth to have at home. And they said for the kinds of work that they do based on a 40-hour week and the 54.7 hours you put in overtime, that you are worth $112,962 a year. Now, if you happen to work full-time, you are worth $66,969 for the overtime you put in when you get home from work. So I thought that might be uh, helpful for our kids to get just how valuable you are. And just, I also read that the uh, number one stressor, that the most difficult kid for moms is a dad. (laughs) And he causes the most stress more than all the other kids. So Bridge Kids, thank you. You are dismissed. Today we're in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 30. Mark chapter 8. I encourage you to follow uh, this program in your outline if you choose to. It's a good way to it's a good way to stay asleep when I get boring is to try to keep notes. Michael May was blinded at the age of three, and he lived 42 years of his life without sight. Then in 1999, at the age of 45, he was given the possibility to see again through what was then a revolutionary transplant surgery. Before this, before 1999, there were about 40 cases of sight being restored to those born blind or who became blind uh, at a very early age. Recovering sight gave similar similar responses to people who had been blind. For example, at first, uh, after surgery like this, they experienced euphoria as light rushed into their repaired eyes. They saw color and and, uh, motion immediately. Everything was new and exciting. It was a miracle for them. But notice this. Later... Frustration set in. Learning to live with sight was a huge learning curve. Most couldn't perceive height, distance, depth, or three-dimensional. They couldn't read facial expressions or detect gender. That'd be difficult. Family members who had expected immediate change often became discouraged by the slow transformation. Michael May experienced the very same symptoms as the other um, patients, but he chose to respond differently. He embraced the learning curve as an adventure. He saw it as a lifelong quest because it took a long, long time for him to gain perception. It was incredibly difficult, but he continued to learn and discern. For example, going outside and picking up a baseball with his son for the very first time was incredibly hard. Over and over and over again, he tried to see the ball. He tried to catch the ball. Eventually, he would get it. 
Becoming a follower of Christ doesn't give a person uh, instant spiritual insight into the spiritual world or to having a relationship with God. It's really a long process, and sometimes it's a steep learning curve. Now, here's the question. Have you embraced the learning curve? What it takes to grow in spiritual understanding, spiritual discernment. Um, have you embraced the learning curve or are you stuck? Are you just come to a halt and have not moved on? Um, and some of you just may be discouraged in the learning curve. Our passage today is about the learning curve in Mark chapter 8. And first we're going to have a lesson about spiritual understanding in verses 14 through 21. A lesson about spiritual understanding. First, verse 14, we see the situation. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. So, need a little background here. It sounds like they're on a journey. Now, where are they? Well, they're in a boat, and they're on the Sea of Galilee, and they're with Jesus. They recently had been in Dalmanutha, and you remember where that is on the map, don't you? It's on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, They had uh, recently been there to feed the 4,000 and were confronted by the Pharisees in Dalmanutha. Uh, Now, in verse 14, the disciples realize they have forgotten to bring bread. Whose fault is that? Somebody wasn't doing their job. Verse 15, Jesus gives a warning. Jesus says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Uh, So Jesus gives an instructional warning to the disciples. He says, watch out. And he's talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And, you know, like, what's going on with the disciples? The disciples are worried about the bread. Yeast was a common concept in Bible times, and here it's used figuratively, uh, and it's used because of its ability to influence, for example, a whole lump of dough. A small uh, lump of of yeast uh, can can, uh, filter, spread through an entire... Uh, lump of dough, a very large lump of dough. So uh, what was the yeast of the Pharisees? What yeast do the Pharisees have? And what yeast does Herod have? Um, The warning is about the influence of the Pharisees on the people. Uh, The Pharisees have a religiosity without a relationship with God. They're all about their religion. They're all about the rules. They're all about being right. And in fact, um, they do not have spiritual discernment. The influence of Herod, the east of Herod, is about uh, the influence of worldliness and sensuality. The secular mindset. The religious mindset and the secular mindset. And Jesus is saying, beware. And this is instruction for his disciples. He's saying, heads up, guys. Now, he's just had an encounter with the Pharisees before they got into the boat. So this is like real current for him. The discussion in verse 16, they discuss 
uh, with this one another and said, it is because we have no bread. So they're like one focus, and they haven't heard. They haven't been paying attention to Jesus. They didn't get what he just said. They heard the word yeast, and they went back to bread. Why? Because that's what they're worried about. That's the biggest problem of their day. That's the circumstances they're in. You ever find that your circumstances become your focus and what you worry about? So who's to blame? You know, not me, Peter might say, or John. Not me either. The disciples heard the yeast, and they're thinking they're preoccupied with bread. Um, The truth is, sometimes we don't hear God because we're worried about the bread or whatever our circumstances are right this minute. The questions come in verse 17, and there are several. Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? That's a good question. Why are you talking about having no bread? It has nothing to do with his teaching about the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Do you not still see or understand I think Jesus might be concerned with their uh, ability to perceive and to tune in. Jesus is drawing this to uh, their attention, and this requires reflection. Uh, Do you still not see or understand? You know, I can see the disciples sitting there and going, what is he talking about? And just, you know, trying to figure out what happened. Uh, Are your hearts hardened? Well, they're trying, but they've been struggling These days are long, and the hours are very long, and it's very tiring to be with Jesus because he works us all day long. And, you know, we try to get away, and then Jesus engages in somebody else, and he wants to heal somebody else. And um, we find out in Mark chapter 6 and chapter 7, their eyes are just kind of glazed over. And Jesus said, are you spiritually dull? You remember that? Verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Think about this. They have been eyewitnesses to all that Jesus has been doing and saying. They were there. They've seen the healing. They've seen the miracles. They they saw the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. But they're missing information along the way. They have gained a lot, but they have not reflected They haven't asked, what is the meaning and significance of all these things? Verse 19. um, Verse 18, he says, and don't you remember? And it's just question after question. It's not fun when your teacher just keeps asking you questions. When I broke the five loaves, verse uh, 19, for the fourth 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. They got the right answer. They're totally accurate. Uh, Twelve, they replied. They counted them. It was perfect. There were no mistakes in the count. Uh, Oh, yeah, those were the leftovers. Um, And you know how they knew so well? Because they had to walk around the over 5,000 people one by one and pick up the leftovers. And they had to carry the baskets, 12 baskets. And they reached down and picked up Every last detail. I wonder who the feeding of the 5,000 was for. For the 5,000 or for the disciples? 
Because this is all about teaching them and training them for the future. Verse 20, And when I broke the seven loaves, Jesus said, for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And again, it was that hands-on object lesson. They had to touch the baskets to distribute them, every one of them, until the whole group. I bet that was pretty tiring. Jesus just kept handing them food. He handed them bread and he handed them fish. And they have to walk around and carry it to every group. They have to go back to Jesus and then they have to go out to the people. Then back to Jesus and out to the people. And then they got to pick up the abundance. Verse 21, he said to them, Do you still not understand? Understand what? If you have five loaves in Jesus, that would be enough. If you have seven loaves in Jesus, that's probably going to be enough. But what if you only have one loaf in Jesus? Maybe, maybe it will be enough. So uh, here's a lesson for us. God desires for us to grow in spiritual understanding and discernment. God desires for us to grow in spiritual understanding and discernment, just like the disciples. Jesus expected his disciples to grow. He kept giving them opportunities. He kept giving them experiences, exposure, and he was looking for them to process and to reflect and to come and improve in their spiritual understanding. He was very patient. He was open to questions. But he wanted them to observe what was happening and what was being said and to be able to reflect. What is the meaning and significance of these things? Um, Jesus wanted them to embrace their learning curve. How about you? Have you embraced your learning curve, what God is teaching you and what God wants to teach you? The writer of Hebrews um, makes a reference to this kind of thinking in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And the writer's been talking about Melchizedek. It's kind of an Old, Old Testament concept, and it's a bit lengthy, and so he just sort of stops. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. He's saying you've had enough time, you've had enough information, you've had enough exposure. You should be further along in your understanding spiritually. You ought to go back to the elementary truths of God's Word. You need milk, not solid food. And just describing that milk is something you give infants And uh, as they grow, as their digestive system changes, they're able to handle table scraps, then T-bone steak eventually. And the the goal of a believer is to be able to understand more difficult spiritual concepts. Verse 31, And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with... Next slide. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use, constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. There's a part of spiritual disciplines that we we do to train ourselves. It's It's not the church's job. There's a part where it's my job to engage in my spiritual development 
and I need to train myself, and I need to have a constant use of handling spiritual things. That means I need to have a constant use of handling the Word of God and constant use of the resource of prayer. It's one of those spiritual disciplines. It's one of those things that puts, puts me in touch with God and makes me spiritually attuned with God, gives me spiritual perception and spiritual understanding as I learn to walk with God. So that's a lesson about spiritual understanding. The next lesson, verses 22 through 26, is a lesson about spiritual clarity. The situation is verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, so they've been in the boat. Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And they're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. They arrive at Bethsaida. We don't know who the people are. They're unnamed. They brought a blind man. And now they beg Jesus. Why are they there? Because they believe that Jesus can help them. They think Jesus has what it takes. They have a kind of faith in Jesus. They think he can do it. The disciples, guess what? They're into the bread. What are we going to do about bread? And here comes uh, these, these uh, people with their friend who's a blind man. Uh, we need a map. There we go. You knew we would have it. So Sea of Galilee, it's way up in the northern part of Israel. They have just come from Dalmanutha, and we didn't get that on the map. We were too busy this week to find it. But they crossed. uh, So Dalmanutha is kind of in the middle on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they, by boat, have gone to Bethsaida and have arrived there, and that's where they meet the blind man. Verse 23, the personal touch. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. This incident is only recorded in the book of Mark, and it's really uh, a unique situation because of the personal touch of Jesus. Jesus took the man by the hand, and he walked him outside of the village. We don't know how far he walked, but I'm guessing it could have been a few blocks pretty easy. He could have had anybody take the guy's hand. He could have had one of the friends lead him out. He could have asked the disciples to do it. Jesus does it personally. He takes him by the hand, and he walks him out. The healing is verse 23 through 25. The healing comes in two stages, and this is unique, and this is unusual. Verse uh, 23, when he had spit on the man's eyes. Now, I don't get this. This is just how Jesus did it. He spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. At least Jesus is the source of all that's happening here. Jesus asked, do you see anything? So he's put a question out, and he's looking for a response. He's looking for the man to engage with him about what is happening. And, um, he, you know, Jesus, he's healed people a lot of ways. He could have just stayed back in the boat and said, be healed, and he could have been healed could have healed him in the city. He walks him outside. Now he's going to do this in two stages. Do you see anything? He looked up and said, verse 24, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So it's not very clear what he sees. He sees movement. Um, Maybe these are the disciples or maybe these are his friends. Um, It appears that Jesus intentionally heals this man gradually, not instantaneously. Um, it's not 
absolutely clear why he does this. When we get to heaven, we can ask him. But it seems like he has a lesson for his disciples. Verse 25. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now he sees things, the second touch, he sees things clearly. Verse 26, instruction, Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus wanted the man to go directly home to his family. He didn't want him to go back into the village. He didn't want him to go to the public square. He didn't want the man to engage with the crowds of people. Now, we've seen this in many other occasions in the book of Mark. Jesus was not trying to draw attention to himself. Because what had happened with his popularity and all of the healing and all the thousands of people that were coming to him, there was sort of a celebrity rock star mentality. He's the miracle worker. Let's go see what he can do. Let's, let's be amazed. Let's have this experience. And, you know, there were a lot of people who, who needed to be healed and they needed help. But a lot of people just wanted to go see the show. And Jesus wasn't looking for that kind of of attention. It was not his mission, and so he would pull away. Here's the lesson. Personal time with Jesus brings spiritual clarity. Personal time with Jesus brings spiritual clarity. This incident was a physical parable for the disciples. It was one-on-one time with Jesus that restored this man's physical eyesight. Now he could see everything clearly. Jesus wants his followers to see clearly. And it's going to start by spending time with him. The disciples are having that opportunity over and over and over again. And they are stuck. And Jesus is anxious for them to gain Uh, spiritual understanding, and spiritual clarity. Um, Passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago that's worth coming back to is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. And uh, please notice, this is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. It's written for eternity. It's written for us. It's written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This is a prayer so that you can know Jesus better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Does your heart have eyes? Probably not literal. It's figurative. It's about spiritual perception that you might perceive, that you might see spiritually, that you might have spiritual understanding, that you might have clarity, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Sometimes we lose hope. Sometimes we get off the course. Sometimes we forget what we already know. That you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Next slide. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. God's power for us, that you might know it. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. We can pray that. We can pray for spiritual perception that we can see and have hope and, and uh, tune in to God's power. It doesn't mean he gives us everything we want. It's about being in submission to the Lordship of Christ. But that power is available to all of us. Verses 27 through 30, our last point, a lesson about grace. A lesson about grace. Verse 27, the situation. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So after landing at Bethsaida and giving sight to the blind man, Jesus and his disciples head out on foot, and we got to look at the map. So see Caesarea Philippi. There are two Caesareas in the first century world. Caesarea is on the west coast of the land of Israel. But Caesarea Philippi is inland, and it's about 25 miles north, slightly west of Bethsaida. And it's Caesarea Philippi to honor Caesar, and it's Philippi to honor Herod Philip the Tetrarch, who was the brother of Herod Antipas. And uh, so that's where they go. The question comes in verse 27. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? This is a test, guys. Pay attention. Look up here. This is a test. Uh, What have the disciples learned in their everyday journeys with Jesus? The answer is verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So Jesus has gotten people's attention. They, they've, they've watched him, and they see him as somehow he is from God. He is important. He represents God. He's doing the work of God. At least the, the populace sees him that way. John the Baptist was his forerunner. Uh, He was prophesied in Isaiah 40 that there would be one who prepares the way of the Lord. And it was John, and he's already dead. Herod beheaded him. And so some are saying John the Baptist has been resurrected. Jesus is John resurrected. Others are saying, no, it's Elijah, who lived uh, 800 years earlier, and he's been resurrected. And uh, some are saying the prophets. I think in Matthew it says that some people thought he was Jeremiah, resurrected. Somehow they, 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 it seems like he must be important. Um, they are very vague about what they think. They're making guesses, and they are not specific, and they are not clear. The personal question comes in verse 29. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? What have you learned? What is your assessment? What do you think? They give a personal answer, verse 29, and Peter answered. Peter speaks up, and he speaks for the 12, and he said, you are the Messiah. Pretty good answer. You are the Christ. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Anointed One. Remember, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title. Christ and Messiah are the exact same. Messiah is a Hebrew concept. Christ is a Greek concept. Both of them mean anointed one. And there was this anointed one that everybody was looking forward to from the Old Testament. And Peter gets this. You 
are the Messiah. Now, sort of, they've been slow to get here. You know, they've got Jesus and five loaves of bread, and they've got Jesus and one loaf of bread, and they're don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, Matthew 16, uh, Matthew records a little bit more for us, verses 15 through 17. And, and when Matthew records this, he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter has just tuned in to the God of the universe and he's gained understanding about who Jesus is. Um, But please notice, it was God who revealed this. It wasn't because Peter was smart and he'd made all the right calculations. It was God's favor right then on Peter. We call it grace. It came from God. It was given by God. Spiritual understanding, spiritual discernment, spiritual clarity came by grace. Verse 30, the instruction, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And so, you know, Jesus, again, it's kind of a cover-up. It's that Jesus' time had not yet come. And Jesus is in a holding pattern about going public so that everybody... uh, gets who he is because there's so much confusion about. In fact, there's still a lot of confusion on the disciples' part because here's where we are. We are halfway through the book, eight chapters through the book. There's 16. And Jesus has been moving the whole time toward this moment that Peter gets, Jesus, you are the Messiah. But... There's a whole lot they don't understand. This is not enough to send the 12 out and establish a church and for Jesus to go back to heaven. Because the, most, the popular view of Messiah was, it was extremely popular. You've heard me talk about it. They were looking for a great king who was going to be a deliverer and savior, and he was going to kill all the Romans. And he was going to run Rome out of town. And he was going to be a great king in Jerusalem and restore the kingdom like a David and a Solomon, except being better and have no enemies. And, he would ki- and basically, they believed that, that the Messiah would kill the Gentiles and the Jews would be great. There's a little bit of misunderstanding about what was going to happen. And what we're going to see is, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks, the way of the Messiah is going to be the way of the cross, and the disciples don't get that. And so he's not ready. There's a lot of training yet to come. Here's the lesson. Spiritual clarity is a gracious act of God. Spiritual clarity is a gracious act of God. It does not happen because you're smarter than the rest of us. Spiritual clarity comes from God. It's through his word. It's by his spirit. It's through prayer. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides us into all truth. So, back to us. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Probably in a room like this, there are people who say, well, he was a great teacher. He was a great man, great moral teacher. Um, Important man in history. Some would say he's Savior. Some would say he's Lord and Master. 
Revelation 19, verse 16 says that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Who do you say that he is? Let me remind you with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the Apostle Paul, this is a classic passage, one of the most important in the New Testament about the theology of who Jesus is. The Apostle Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we're supposed to be like Jesus. It's very clear that we should have an attitude. We should have the mind of Christ. Verse 6, this is what Jesus was like. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Very clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is God, equal with the Father. Practically no one understood that in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. Uh, Verse 7, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. We call it the incarnation. He was born of the Virgin Mary, became a baby, and he grew up, and he's teaching in the book of Mark. Next slide. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. There's the greatest example of obedience is that following Jesus, even death on a cross. And here's the amazing thing that that someday we're going to understand, that someday everybody in the world and the universe is going to understand. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Next slide. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is going to be time that in history, we have future history revealed to us right now. There is a time coming when it's going to be clear to the universe who Jesus is. Every knee will bow. That's a picture of worship. You and I will worship. This is going to be an event in history. And there are going to be people who are forced to worship. In his authority and power, they're going to bow down. And I hope for you and I, it's just a great joy to be in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ on this on this occasion. So, if Jesus is Lord, if he's a Lord today, if you think he's Lord, what are the implications for your life? If Jesus is Lord, it affects the way we do everything. It affects uh, mom and dad drastically on how they will raise their kids and how they will live in their home and how they will speak in their home and whether they have spiritual disciplines or not. Um, It's going to affect husbands, how they love their wives as Jesus loved the church. Um, It affects um, being self-centered. It it affects um, our speech being petty. If Jesus is Lord, it would affect our speech. Our words should be kind. We should do, do our words build up people or do our words tear down people? If Jesus is Lord, it affects our business dealings and transactions. Are we honest and forthcoming in all of our business relationships? If Jesus is Lord, it affects the way we handle our money that he has provided 
before us. Um, if Jesus is Lord, it affects our attitude in the workplace. Do we do things so that Jesus will be honored, so that his reputation will be enhanced? If Jesus is Lord, it makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus is Lord, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is very easy. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. What's God's mercy? It's the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. What's the first 11 chapters all about? That Jesus died for you. And the implications to the church and to Israel and to the non-Christian, to the Jewish person, it's all about the implications of Jesus. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. It's about submitting to the Lordship of Christ. So, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Uh, We need continual spiritual understanding and clarity. This comes when we spend time with Jesus. Because Jesus is Lord, may God's power be at work in each of us as we grow spiritually. Let's stand and pray. Father, it's my prayer today that you would encourage us just to continue our walk with you, to grow closer to you, to pursue... um, spiritual understanding, and spiritual clarity. To stay the course when it comes to devotions, when it comes to spending time with the Word, when it, when it comes time to depend on you and to trust you and to grow in prayer. Thank you that you have revealed Jesus Christ to us. That we've had the privilege to hear about Jesus. And we know that There are a lot of people who have not heard about Jesus and that by grace you've enabled us to understand and by grace you have enabled us to believe and by grace you've enabled us to become children of God. Father, may you use us to shine brightly in our world to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Jesus. Help us be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Amen.